This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, welcome to the New Books and German Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of several co-hosts with the New Books and German Studies podcast. Today, we are fortunate to have Sarah Thompson Vieira as our guest. Dr. Thompson Vieira is Assistant Professor of History at New England College in New Hampshire. We'll discuss her book entitled Turkish Germans in the Federal Republic of Germany, Immigration, Space, and Belonging, 1961 to 1990, published in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. The book is based upon research initially done for a dissertation that won the German Historical Institute's Fritz Stern Prize. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Um, Sarah, I'd like to open the interview today by asking you to share a little bit about your professional background uh, and possibly a little bit about your personal background. Specifically, how did you become committed to a career in German studies? And how did you particularly become drawn to the history of Turkish guest workers in Germany? Uh, well, the, the answer to that question takes us back a bit um, because I have been interested in German history since uh, I was an undergraduate and and actually became interested in Germany specifically because as a high school student, I was lucky enough that German was one of the languages that they offered. So by the time that I got to college, I was I was I knew I was interested in history. I knew I was interested. I thought I was interested in politics, and um, so I started taking history classes. And the first professor that I had. Um, his, his area is modern Germany and he was great. Like he was, he was enthusiastic. Um, he was passionate. He, he, his classes were interesting. Um, and so I was pretty much hooked into German history from that first semester. So when I was out of college and I was trying to think about what came next, um, a friend of mine mentioned the possibility of graduate school, um, and said that, they pay you to study history, which I thought was the most fantastic idea ever. Um, and uh, But I knew that if I went back to school, I wanted to spend my time studying something that had a contemporary resonance so that it could sort of keep my interest, but also help me to make sense of the world I lived in and, and not just the world of the past. And I was fortunate enough as an and undergraduate to be able to study abroad in Berlin. So I got to see the... Um, the multiculturalism of that city, um, as you know, as a young woman, and so when I started thinking about what sort of project I could I could do as a graduate student, as a sort of apprentice historian, um, the idea of doing something with immigration in modern Germany was really appealing to me. So that's sort of what I came in with when I went to graduate school, and you know, from there on out, it was. It was, it, it held my interest and it just took me down so many different paths of, of considering um, topics such as, as belonging and citizenship, uh, immigration and immigrant settlement. And um, that it was something that, um, 
that was interesting to me personally, um, that was something that had a contemporary resonance that I could sort of attach to, and was something that was really intellectually stimulating and imposed a lot of questions and, and had me sort of going in different directions trying to answer them. Great. And I, I do think it's a very interesting topic. And I really appreciated your your contribution. As someone who uh, studies Germany, but isn't a specialist in this particular field, I really uh, learned an awful lot from uh, the meticulous research you did here. Um, before we delve into the book itself, I'd like to ask you about your title, um, and particularly about the first part of the title, uh, Turkish Germans. Uh, it seems uh, politicians, members of the media, academics, and activists sometimes disagree about terminology for the large population in Germany that descends from Turkish guest workers. Uh, I personally, uh, and again, as some, something of a non-specialist here, have heard German Turks, in the case of this book, Turkish Germans, uh, in Germany, Germans uh, with a migration background sometimes. Green Party politician Cem Uzdemir has even famously, uh, but I think consciously, referred to himself as an Anatolian Swabian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so can you explain uh, maybe how you chose the title of Turkish Germans and maybe reflect a little bit on some of these terminology issues? Sure. Um, as you pointed out, there are a lot of different ways to talk about people um, to talk about identity in in Germany in modern Germany and um, depending on who is doing sort of the labeling it, it, it's clear that there are uh, particular identifiers that that some parties are more interested in like Germans with immigration background is something you'll hear much more in sort of public policy um, public discourse and in in the field of Turkish German studies, I think the two that we we tend to favor more are either Turkish Germans or German Turks. Um, and so I um, the title the title like like much in the book underwent a lot of revisions sort of in the process of moving things from a dissertation to a manuscript to finally a book. And um, the publisher and I and the editor sort of. Um, we hit back and forth between each other, sort of tennis played this, the title out. And, and at one point um, she was thinking more Turkish immigrants in the federal Republic of Germany, but I really felt like immigrants referred very specifically to the, the first generation who, who immigrated, you know, who moved to Germany. And I felt like the, um, the continual identification of the second and then third generation as immigrants um, was inaccurate and was something that until recently has been something you've heard more in the public discourse in Germany. Um, but to, to continually to refer to these people who were born in Germany, raised in Germany, went to German schools as immigrants was, uh, I think, a strong sort of political statement and a way of, of separating them out from Germans. So um, so in in the field of Turkish German studies, we go back to Turkish Germans or German Turks, and I prefer Turkish Germans because, um, for me, when I'm when you think about these words and about what they mean, um, the putting um, Turkish first and German second identifies them as Germans who have a Turkish background, Germans who um, who are citizens who are residents, who are, you know, students who are co-workers and colleagues. 
but who are also Turkish. Um, and I thought that that to to switch that around to call them German Turks is to say that they are essentially Turkish, um, but they are just more German than other Turks. So that's why I I personally choose um, Turkish Germans. Now you can you can have someone you can ask someone else this question, and I'm sure that they could give just as good a reason <laughs> to talk about German Turks. Um, but this was the this was the identifier that I thought was the most accurate that could describe both the first and second generations that I was studying and I was writing about in my book. Thank you for that explanation. Um, moving into the content of the book a little bit, I'd like to talk uh, about how you open the book. Um, your introduction, like many of your chapters actually, opens with a great anecdote. And this anecdote comes uh, from an oral history. And I was wondering if you could summarize your opening anecdote for the audience. And then, and this is part of what I think makes the anecdote work so well, uh, explain how it represents really the main thesis of this monograph uh, and the argument that you you make throughout it. Um, I was very fortunate when I was doing research in Berlin um, to have met Ursula Trupa and in the 90s, um, Ursula did a series of oral history interviews um, in in vetting in the district of vetting, and then compiled those for <clears throat> excuse me for an exhibit that was at the the Mitte Museum in vetting uh, that was on um, the on immigrants in in a particular neighborhood on Sparplatz that was in Sprengelkitz. And I, I got to meet um, Ursula Trupa and talk with her about the interviews she did. And also, um, as, as you mentioned from um, reading the, so the beginnings of each chapter, many of those are, are from the interviews that she did that I was able to read later. Um, the, the anecdote that you're talking about is one of my favorites because I, I agree. It, it, it illustrates very clearly what, what follows in the book, sort of what my argument is and, and how the history of Turkish Germans unfolds. And so the anecdote itself is about Eren Kesken, and that's a pseudonym. I changed all the names of the people from the interviews that I, that I um, found. And then if the interviews that I did, if, if they wanted pseudonyms, I did that as well. But he was born in 1960. He was born in Turkey. His parents were working in Germany. They eventually brought him over um, as as a sort of young man. If I remember correctly, he was he was maybe 13, 14. They brought him over to live with them in, in West Berlin. And it was quite a transition for him getting settled in, but he did. And he, he sort of sank himself down into this neighborhood. He got a job. Um, he married, he started a family, and then he became the owner of a Kneipe, so a little pub um, in the, the district that I focused on in my book. And so he, as young, he's a young man, he's married, he's a business owner. And um, Ursula Trupa and an, another man um, went to his his place of business to interview him one day. And so they're talking with him and they're talking with him about what the neighborhood is like. And and of course, his his customers are also chipping in because this is a neighborhood place and they all hang out there in the afternoons. 
And so Ursula is asking them, you know, what do you, how is the neighborhood? Um, what do you think about it? And they're talking about, oh, how it used to be great, but now, you know, kids are hanging around and they're doing drugs and the economy's really down, gone downhill since the wall fell and reunification. And all those, all those guys that are coming over from the East, they work super cheap. And so it's hard for these guys to hold jobs and to get jobs that are decent paying. So they're all of these guys, so Aaron Keskin and his and his customers are all sort of saying these things that we sort of we understand as being a common sentiment among a lot of West Berliners and, and West Germans even um, at that time in the in the early nineties. You know, the the wall's fallen and, and Germany um, as a country is sort of trying to figure out how all this works economically. Um, and also sort of politically and, and culturally. So they're, they're talking about all using all of these idioms and all of these tropes that are, that are so familiar to West Berliners. And then, um, and then someone asks, I think it was Ursula Trupa asks, um, so are you going to get citizenship? She asked this to um, Ryan Kesken and, and he just sort of, um, you can sort of imagine him throwing up his hands and he's like, we have black heads, you know, we, we have black hair, basically. Everyone knows we're not German, you know? Um, so even though he has just spent the last however long, he and his and his clients have spent the ha- last however long totally sympathizing and speaking the words of fellow West Berliners of frustration about how reunification is going, she, when she asks about citizenship, when she asks him about changing his passport, he immediately then distances himself from this and says, you know, I'm not German. Every, anyone who looks at me can see I'm not German. Um, and so, of course not. Um, and I just, I find that particular interaction and in Kesken's answers as being really reflective of the sort of the, the, the fact that integration is something that happens in pieces and in different places in different times. Um, and I talk about this in the book as being spaces of belonging so that there are spaces in um, Turkish Germans daily landscapes, the second generation, the first generation where they have, they have made spaces for themselves to belong, that, that they have changed and been changed by the environment they live in. And that in these places, they are integrated into these particular places and spaces. Um, but at the same time, the conditions of that can change in a way that can then make them feel like outsiders instead of insiders or can reinforce something that um, that makes them identify with not being a part of that community. And so that was what I, I was particularly interested in, in, in looking at in my book, this idea that integration is not some sort of linear progression that you start at one point and that you end at the other point and you can say that these people are integrated past tense done you know close the door but that this is an ongoing process that that can change dependent on the particular political or historical climate where they are in the course of their day who is around them um and even the discussions that are happening around them so that is um that's where I felt like Renka Skin's story or this 
part of his story was so reflective of the the larger Turkish German community and its place within West German society and then reunified Germany society. Well, personally, I always enjoy histories that sort of capture the messiness of history and sort of question these larger sort of assumptions that are either out there and, you know, existing narratives or maybe the media too sometimes. Um, and yeah, so this, this notion of uh, an integration that, you know, has space for contradictions uh, really interested me. Um, and yeah, and this uh, book, uh, as you mentioned, in many ways is a spatial history and just, you know, for the audience um, who haven't seen it, right, you sort of organize your chapters around space. Um, you look at uh, the workplace, you look at the home, you look at schools, uh, religious uh, sites, uh, and so on. And just to make clear for the listeners, too, when you talk about the district of vetting, right, this is a district within Berlin, within West Berlin. Um, and so uh, as a book kind of organized around space, right, the first chapter of the book examines the Turkish guest workers' experience within the workplace. And this chapter has lots of interesting elements to it. Uh, and I kind of viewed it as something that had uh, these two sides to it that really compelled me. On the one hand, I was very interested in your analysis of German businesses right, and how they acted uh, toward Turkish guest workers, especially after the government, the, the West German government, ended the guest worker program in the 1970s. But on the other hand, you also... Um, focus as you do through the whole book on Turkish guest workers agency, right? Um, and of course, nothing sort of articulated this agency more than when uh, Turkish guest workers uh, left their initial workplaces and began starting their own businesses in, in West Berlin and in West Germany. So I was wondering if you could reflect on the one hand on um, what German businesses did, and then on the other hand, how uh, Turkish guest workers themselves sort of created spaces in the workplace. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, this is a book that it, it very much draws on, um, on cultural geography, on social and cultural geography. And so as I was thinking about how to, how to tackle and how to organize um, my approach to this, I thought about the different places that um, Turkish, Turkish guest workers in the first generation were were brought over to sort of inhabit. And the workplace is, is definitely that first space. And so you have then in my first chapter um, focusing on, on the different types of workplaces um, that, <clears throat> that the first generation um, sort of settled into. And I, um, so I looked first than at West German businesses because these were, uh, these were the sort of the draw for these Turkish workers to sort of bring them out of Turkey, to bring them over to West Germany. And, and then in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, especially West Berlin um, to, to work in these jobs that they couldn't get enough Germans to fill or in the case of, um, of women that they wanted to be able to, um, to maintain sort of the, the, the conservative political outlook of, of German women not having to work full time so that they could be home when their kids get home, which Monica Mattis wrote a great book on um, guest worker women looking specifically at that phenomenon. But you end up with a lot of um, 
of female guest workers in West Berlin, you know, for partly for that reason. Um, and so I looked at, largely I looked at, um, bigger companies like Siemens, um, and, um, and how they, starting with the, the sort of advertisements that they did in Turkey to sort of introduce potential Turkish employees to what their company would be like to get them to apply to, to come over. And, um, Siemens and, and AEG Telefunken, they had, they were very organized in this, the, the recruitment of workers, but also trying to then sort of fit the workers into the particular company molds that they had for them and to educate them as to what their sort of rights and responsibilities as employees of this company, these companies, and as um, sort of residents, uh, foreign residents in West Germany and West Berlin. And uh, one of the things that I found particularly interesting when I was looking at these companies and and the the documents that I was able to find from them that were relevant was uh, company publications that were for these guest workers that that would be put out. um, There's usually be like a page or something in the company newsletter or the company newspaper that would be specifically for their guest worker populations, their guest worker employees. And it it was fascinating to see the things that the companies thought that the, that the guest workers ought to know or that needed to know, or that would be helpful for them to know. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, this is where you go to, to access your, your healthcare needs, or this is the office that you talk to if you want to organize vacation or, um, ones that I thought were particularly relevant and interesting. This is what you do to extend your, uh, the permit for your residency in the city or in the country. So this is what you do in order to make it so that that contract that we said was going to be, you know, two or three years, if you want to stay longer, here's what you do to, to be able to stay longer. So these companies were not particularly interested in having the same kind of turnover and their workforce that that the government had had initially instituted in these temporary guest worker programs. The companies had brought in these workers, they had trained these workers, the workers now knew their jobs, and, and they weren't interested in this rotation principle that was supposed to be a part of the guest worker program. So the companies were actively educating their foreign employees to to be able to use the system to stay longer. And then while they were doing that, there was this interesting social and cultural element um, of what the companies sort of offered their foreign employees. Um, they would say, you know, the the you know the the German equivalent of all work and no play makes Joe a dull boy. And so they would say, you need to have you need to have um, hobbies, but you should have hobbies that are German hobbies. So you should have a football team, you know, a soccer team. But you should make sure that that's not a soccer team that's like this city from Turkey versus that city from Turkey. You know, you should you should work together on these on these football teams, um, or some that really began to skirt or cross the line from um, from being helpful to being really patronizing. Like you shouldn't leave your trash um, in the stairwell, or you shouldn't um, you shouldn't. You know, sort of trying to teach them this is how West Germans live. So if you're going to live not in the dormitory, then you need to be aware of this is this these are the sort of the 
the ways that West Germans behave, these are the ex- expectations that they have. So you need to, um, and at one point, this was a phrase that was actually used, you know, sort of disregard your Southern temperament and um, sort of adhere to the social norms of where you are. So the companies were um, trying to make their guest workers um to encourage their guest workers not just to stay, but also to, to integrate into society in a certain way. Um, and the, the workers themselves um, were, one thing I found was particularly interesting was that they were also using these workplaces in ways that would, that were contrary to the, the expectations. So um there was that famous saying, like, we, we, we asked for labor and people came. So these are people now, and they're people who want to live out their lives in certain ways that are not um, necessarily in line with sort of political expectations for them. So uh, they want to start families. So there was one woman I interviewed who she came over as a 17 year old, technically you were supposed to be 18, but she and her dad lied on the application and said she was 17. So she came over to West Berlin as a 17 year old and decided that, um, after being there for a couple of years, she wanted to get married and she wanted to move out and into the neighborhoods and she wanted to start a family. And so while, while the companies are are educating, trying to educate their workers, you know, to be good workers and to stay longer and, you know, to be a, a, a limited, at least, part of society, they're not necessarily thinking we want them to get married, we want them to have families. But the workplaces that these um, guest workers inhabit are places where they start to build social networks. And the dormitories, um, the company dormitories that they live in, are places where they are building these social networks. So this young woman who comes over decides she wants to get married and uses those social networks to effectively find herself a husband. And so she finds finds herself a husband with some help of some friends and um, relatives. Uh, This is all, you know, outside of the, the oversight of her parents. She lets them know afterwards, which during the interview, she'd sort of said as an aside, I wouldn't recommend this, you know, telling your parents afterwards that you've gotten married. She's like, it, it didn't go over well, but so she, she, she gets married. She has kids. She settles in West Berlin, which eventually becomes reunified Berlin. And so I'm interviewing her in like 2008 or 2009. And she came over initially on, on a, you know, two to three year, um, labor contract. So between the company sort of educating her in a way to help her continue to be able to figure out how to stay there legally and longer and the social networks that she built up within the space, within her workplace, these, this sort of space of belonging that the workers created, that she built a life there that actually helped her to settle in to West Germany in a way that was, um, unanticipated by um, the people who were sort of making these programs and making these contracts and, um, and that um, sort of reflects the ways that, that many other of, um, of the first generation were able to use these workplaces as jumping off points into a longer term settlement and integration into society. And I think that the, the case of then um, the Turkish owned businesses is another great example. Um, and that sort of starts to come to the fore 
I think really more in the, if I'm remembering right, like in the eighties. So you start to see this more, you start to see some of this in the seventies, but, but really more in the eighties is you start to get much larger numbers of, and multi-generational families um, in West Berlin. The, the, the jobs that, that the Turkish guest workers had, um, some of them were able to use those initial jobs to, to sort of, to forge, um, useful careers that this would be long-term, but more often than not, um, Turkish guest workers, um, would switch sort of from company to company that to, you know, wherever they could, you know, um, get a better wage or was more convenient to home or that they felt like a more stable place. But it was, um, you know, workplaces are, are not always particularly stable. And, um, between, um, between difficult economic difficulties, which would cause, um, these companies to either do cutbacks or to move out of the city, um, or problems that, that some Turkish Germans had, or Turkish guest workers had, um, in the workplace, um, some decided that they wanted to open their own businesses, that they saw this as an opportunity to be their own bosses, which um, for a certain segment of that population was a really compelling reason to tr- try to go on their own and have their own business. And so it was difficult um, initially for um, for for Turkish residents, for foreign residents to be able to open their own businesses. So in many cases, they would need sort of a German front man who would be the official head of, of their business. Um, but the, but the Turkish owners would actually be the ones who are getting the capital, who were finding the, um, who were finding the supplies that they need, who were, you know, finding the location, who were cultivating a sort of a customer base that would all be, um, these Turkish entrepreneurs. And so, um, you started to see the rise of, of businesses that, um, at, at first, some of them were focused definitely more on the Turkish immigrant community, um, on the Turkish German community and feeding, um, needs, meeting needs uh, to those particular potential customers that their German counterparts didn't anticipate. So you had people who were opening business, opening businesses, um, that assisted in travel. You had ones that opened businesses um, that had to do with particular food types that you couldn't find in other places. And then there were barbers and then there were tailors and, and there was the coffee shop. Um, so all of these different kinds of businesses that were, that were meeting a, a, a need that was not being met already in, um, <clears throat> in these particular markets. So, um, but in, as in many other historical, you know, sort of environments, um, being a, a, a small business was also a rather unstable thing. Um, and, and some of these, many of these businesses didn't last particularly long. Some of them did. Um, some of them became very embedded in the neighborhoods that they were in. Um, a, a couple in, in Sprengelkeets that were around, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, when I went to do my research, were still there, were still thriving concerns. And so, um, so, um, the, the entrepreneurs in these businesses would, um, some of them would try to sort of stay in their own sort of niche. And some of them would try to, to, um, branch out so that they would have a, a broader customer base. So they would be more stable economically that way. Um, and then with the rise of these businesses, um, sort of changing the landscape visually that, um, started to feed into, um, 
the perceptions of of West Berlin residents, of German West Berlin residents, who saw their neighborhoods changing, um, who now in the 80s, even though the the guest workers had been there for um, some of them, you know, 15, 20 years, when you when you get to the early 80s with the rise of the Turkish-owned businesses and um, multi-generational communities, that's when that's when uh, German folks in, in vetting specifically, since that's what I'm looking at, start to look around and think, oh, well, all of a sudden there are a lot of Turks, which isn't, isn't the case, but visually they became much more present than they had been in the past. I feel, although it's not the central argument of the book or not a part of the central argument of the book, you really do use uh, gender as a way to um, analyze all the material you're working with. And in the middle of the book, you have these two uh, chapters that focus uh, on the home on the one hand and on the neighborhood on the other hand as sites where Turkish Germans created cultural spaces and a sense of belonging. I was uh, really compelled here by your discussion of Turkish women. And uh, in some cases, it seems you show how these women uh, were restrained by Turkish patriarchy and in oral histories expressed resentment at this situation. In other sections, you show how women nonetheless became uh, very active agents in uh, Turkish-German integration and how they re- sometimes rejected uh, West German media reports about repressive Turkish masculinity is overblown. So this is obviously a very sensitive issue, especially considering the way uh, the West German media became kind of obsessed with topics like the veil and things like that. But I was wondering if you could uh, discuss the complex role that women's experiences play in this book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it definitely played a significant role um, in, my, in my research and my writing of the book, um, because Ursula Trupa, the the woman who the historian who conducted the interviews that I was so fortunate as to use, she herself was a volunteer at the Sparladen, which was a neighborhood center um, in Sprengelkitz that um, that that came about from um, these two German women who wanted to serve the immigrant community, especially wanted to. Um, to teach kids language, language through play, to provide safe places uh, for women to um, to communicate with each other and um, to sort of build relationships between the German and Turkish um, women in the community. And so um, she, in the early 90s, conducted several interviews with, with um, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old girls, um, Turkish-German girls, and that I felt really did a great job at, at offering a window into sort of their thoughts and their actions, um, how they understood themselves, how they understood sort of gender roles and the ways that they were rebelling against them. Um, and I think that the Shabbatladen uh, itself is a really good example of this. So I'll, tr- I'll try to use that to, to sort of tackle this big question in, in a more concrete way. Um, 
So the the two West German women who started Sparladen had had a very definite idea of what this space was supposed to be about. They wanted to be able to, um, well, one of them was, she was involved in education and she was just absolutely shocked um, at the the fact that so many um, Turkish German children were were going to the Zondaschule, were, were being sent to a school that um, was for people with uh, physical and with learning disabilities. When these children did not have physical or learning disabilities, they had they they didn't have the language skills that they needed yet to to do well in in the Grundschule in the elementary school. And so um, these women thought, well, if we can, you know, get kids together, if we can help them learn German when they're still little, then that will set them up so much better for school. And and that will solve, you know, any number of social ills. So um, these women, um, they start playing with the kids in the park and they meet the parents and um, try and cultivate good community relationships. They they get this space that they call the Schwarladen and it's it's on Schwarplatz. So it's on this, uh, this, you know, sort of park square in the center of this part of the neighborhood and they have language lessons and they have play times and they have classes or um sort of times for specifically for young women who are sort of early mid teenage years um, because they want them to be in a place that that is safe where they can um, express themselves uh, where they can be apart from parts of the community that that they find um, oppressive or overbearing. And um, so, so spot on is created and the community does use this space, but they don't use it particularly in the way that the creators wanted it to be used. And I think this is a, a great way in seeing how methodologically how space works. So it was created, this place was created with these certain intentions in mind, but the people who use this space began to, began to, to develop and change those um, what it was intended to be into what they wanted or want what they needed to be. So um, it starts out that, you know, if you're in the space, you have to speak German. If you speak anything else other than German, you have to put a penny in a jar or something like that. But, you know, within a couple of years, the place is large, largely the language spoken largely is Turkish. So there are these kids in there that are talking in Turkish and their, their mothers when they're there are talking in Turkish. Um, and so it becomes it becomes less a place of integrating German or Turkish people, Turkish um, first generation of the Turkish German kids into a, a, what the West German women thought would be the most useful way for them to integrate into West German society. And instead becomes a very social place um, that in some ways meets these sort of goals, but in others don't. It does become a place for young women to come and to congregate and to hang out together. Um, and to, um, in, and to, in some ways, yes, like escape the oversight of this neighborhood, because, um, these women, when, when Trupa uh, talks to them, they do talk about how they feel like they are watched in the neighborhood, how the, the, um, the other Turkish residents in the neighborhood watch what they're doing and then tell their parents if, um, if these people think that they're doing anything that's wrong. And the women, the young women experience that is something that, is oppressive and is frustrating and that they do want to, to, um, fight against. Um, and they, but they are able to come to this neighborhood space and to have sort of this free space to talk amongst themselves, which is something that they find particularly useful. Um, at the same time, not all of the young women consider themselves as being as fitting, um, 
sort of the mold of what West German media and some of their West German neighbors consider sort of the, the young Turkish German woman is supposed to be like this. Um, and so they're rebelling against that image, what that's supposed to be. And then at the same time, they're rebelling against what the, their nosy neighbor, sort of the social policing that's going on, what that wants them to be like. Um, and um, the the roles that their parents play in this, their mothers and their fathers, uh, is different for the different girls. Like some of them say, my parents don't mind. Like my parents can say whatever, can say I can do, you know, basically whatever I want. They just want me to be safe. Another young woman's parents um, is very overbearing. Um, and, um, and so there are all these different pressures and expectations on these girls as they're trying to sort of figure out who they are and, and how they want to fit into this community, um, their, this community life. And I think that, um, the, I think another way that that, that is helpful to look at this is when you think about when they go to, um, Kranschule, um, their attitudes toward Kranschule are another reflection of this. So, None of these young women, all of them had gone to Karanshula. One of them had gotten kicked out for misbehaving, um, but all of them had gone. And none of them were really prepared to say it was bad, that it was a bad thing that they learned about Islam, that it was a bad thing that they learned about these different traditions, because they saw it as part of their their Turkish heritage. Um, but none of them particularly saw the value for it for them in the moment. So they they were at a different place at that time. And that that part of their identity was not something they were interested in. And one woman even very, you know, articulate or um, deliberately put it that that was for when she was older and maybe for her kids, that would be good. But for her right now, it wasn't who she was. So there are all these different expectations and stereotypes sort of being laid on these girls and they are sifting through it um, in the late eighties and early nineties and trying to figure out, where they fit in it. And this is before even the headscarf debate happens, because at least in, in, in vetting and in the neighborhood I'm looking at, the headscarf isn't even really an issue until the nineties. So all of this that's going on um, is going on prior to that headscarf debate. And the only time in all of the pictures that I was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to, to find um, of this neighborhood in this time, the only time you ever see headscarves are on much older women or are on, um, um, girls and women when they are in, um, when they are in these Quran Shula lessons, when they are at the mosques, um, in public spaces, in schools, uh, in the homes, uh, in the workplaces, it's, it's not, it's not part of the debate. So it's more in, in those points about behavior than it is about appearance in that sort of way. Excellent. Thank you. And I think uh, your discussion of the Quran Shula is an interesting segue into my next question. And although I think many of our listeners, as it's a podcast about German studies, know German, but for those who don't, uh, Quran Shula is you know a school for the study of the Quran. Uh, outside of school, which is also a situation that's kind of particular to Germany and also particular to its Muslim population. Um, but you have, uh, you know, this great chapter on religion. Uh, I myself am a, a scholar of religion, and I really appreciated what you did with it here. And uh, I think you do a lot with this chapter, so I'd like to give you free realm to say what you'd uh, like about your chapter on religion. 
Although I was particularly struck in this chapter uh, by how you argued that uh, the revolution in Iran in 1979 fundamentally changed how Turkish Muslims were viewed uh, in West Germany uh, by other Germans and how that then, you know, caused them to perhaps alter their outlook and their behavior and possibly their cultural practices. So I was wondering if you could uh, reflect on that chapter a little bit, and particularly on this sort of year 1979 as a rupture. Yes, that was something that I found um, as I was looking through German newspapers and and trying to get a sense of what what German perceptions of of Islam and of Muslims were um, in sort of the earlier years of the guest worker program of the, of Turkey's participation, especially in the guest worker program, and then moving into when you started having the development of multi generational communities, I was really interested in in learning about well what what did Germans think. Islam meant? What did they think of Muslims? Uh, what were their perceptions of these people? And prior to 1979, um, most of the articles that I found in German language newspapers, any mention of, of Islam or of Muslims was about things that were happening outside of Germany. And, and it was focused more on um, sort of cultural events or architecture or, you know, things like this that were just sort of interesting non-threatening and beyond the borders of Germany. But the um, the Iranian revolution and then, of course, the Islamic revolution and, and the, um, the the change for Islam, Iran to becoming the you know, Islamic Republic, that, that, as you said, that significantly and fundamentally changed the ways that West Germans thought about or you know, at the very least, the way that that Western media portrayed, and the way that West German politicians portrayed Islam and Muslims, um, and so where before Islam was, you know, it was this interesting sort of beyond the borders, you know, historically rich but non-German thing, you know, that was far away. Now all of a sudden, Islam was something that was political, that was revolutionary, that was secretive, and that was embedded in the German landscape in these different places. And um, the West German media and politicians very quickly focused on the um, prayer rooms, so Turkish prayer rooms, and um, and the Quran shula, the Quran classes um, specifically. So these moved from being um, so if you think about it sort of geographically, these moved from being in the courtyards, you know, in sort of the, the background of, of people's thoughts, very much onto the street front. And so now there were all of these articles um, with these, you know, fantastic pictures that were just really expressive that talked about the the hidden dangers of Islam, that talked about um, sort of this, the potential for this revolution, um, because it was, it was the political side and, and the cultural side that was particularly, that was seen as being particularly threatening because these now was not something that was, was outside of Germany, but was something that was in Germany and that was a threat to Germany. So the pictures you would see, um, and the descriptions that would be in the articles would be about sort of these, um, you know, heavily bearded men or these women who were, you know, shrouded in garments and you couldn't hardly see any of them. There was this one picture that had, it was just a frame of, 
of people all bowing down, you know, in the same direction in prayer. But because they were bowing down, you couldn't see faces. There was nothing personal about them. The the point of the of that picture and of the article that attended it was that there were all of these sort of mindless people who were just following these dangerous mullahs who were being influenced by radical Islam that was coming out of Iran. And that this was something that was fundamentally dangerous to German culture and society and that needed to be addressed. So that is what you get, you know, in 1979 and in the early eighties in Western media and Western politics, um, this, this idea of the internal danger, um, of Islam and of Muslims. And, you know, the fact that, that most Turkish um, immigrants and their children were, were considered Muslims and that they were then sort of these potential radicals who would be undercutting German values. So politicians um, pretty quickly started focusing uh, not on the, the prayer rooms and mosques sort of generally, but very specifically on the Quran Shula and on the lessons that the kids were learning in those Quran Shula. Um, and there was there's all sorts of speculation on how they were being taught to hate Jews, how they were being taught to hate Germans, um, how they were being taught these, you know, these gender, these gender differences that were, you know, unacceptable in German society. Um, how there was definitely a radical nationalist, element to them. They mentioned the gray wolves um, and just the the danger that this posed to German society, because these were the kids, right? The Turkish German kids that were being educated here and who would be staying in Germany ostensibly. Um, and uh, although, you know, that wasn't necessarily that something that was, that was explicitly said, like they're here, you know, for good. So we, we need to, we need to do something different, but that they're here now, they're going to grow up and they're going to, you know, be a part of our communities and we need to do something about this. So that's when you start getting the push to, to move um, education on Islam and on the Quran out of these unregulated, these dark, these oppressive, these, you know, politically radical um, prayer rooms and mosques and move them into the public schools, which are overseen, which are, you know, lighter, which are controllable, um, where, where, um, West Germans could then sort of tailor what, you know, these kids learned about Islam and about being Muslim in a way that would fit, that they thought would fit into West German society. So that's when you start really getting the push to, to do that, to sort of, um, wrest control of the children's minds as sort of the way that, that they thought about it from these potentially dangerous, um, mullahs who are teaching these things to the kids that, that will make them estrange them, um, from German society and, and place that into the well-regulated, um, uh, and brightly lit. I mean, it's very much, very much dark light continuum in, in, in most of these articles, um, so that you can, protect the kid and uh, keep them from, and one of the articles I think was something like um, mosques drill hate into children. And so we, we don't want to drill hate into children. You know, we want them to, to, you know, live in harmony with the rest of the Germans. So that's, that's what you're getting from, from the articles in the late seventies and the early eighties. Um, on the flip side, I looked at, um, Hurriyet, which is a, a Turkish language um, newspaper that um, they have, you know, of course, there's the, the edition that's published in Turkey, and then there is the um, European edition. And in Hurriyet, 
the articles about mosques and what mosques are, are something very different. I mean, it be, it, they uh, are posited as something that they're very much a center of community life, um, of maintaining traditions and customs, but also, and this is something that, that marks the mosque as a site in West Germany as something that's very different from how it's sort of posited in Turkey at the time, they're places of national identity. So you don't just come to the mosque because you are Muslim and because you want to um, want to um, to participate in communal um, recognition of certain religious holidays or whatever, but you can't become your, because you're Turkish and because that's where you can be Turkish. And that's especially importantly where your kids can come to learn what it means to be Turkish. And there's a lot of, of language in these Turkish language article articles from Hurriyet that talk about how the, the youth especially are losing their Turkishness. And so the mosques are places where they can, they can learn what it truly means to be Turkish and that can sort of save them from being lost then um, to Western society and to the, to the values on the other side. So, um, but they, while the, while the German articles are, are stressing sort of the political radicalness and cultural radicalness, the Turkish language articles are, are, are positing that there's and one of the articles is titled politics has no place in the mosque. Like this is not a political place. This is a place of religion. This is a place of culture and this is a place of national identity. So if those are things you want for you and your kids is sort of, you know, the, the selling point, then, then come into the mosque where you can relieve the feeling of pain that comes from being abroad. Cause it's always about, you know, the people who are living there are abroad because the true home then is Turkey um, in the context of these articles, uh, the, the mosques are, are here for you and they're the place where, where that can happen. Well, Sarah, not many historians uh, discuss how the fall of the Berlin Wall affected Turkish Germans. As the chronological endpoint of your book is 1990, you end with the fall of the Berlin Wall and reunification. Therefore, your final chapter helps fix this problem. Can you explain for our audience how reunification changed the life uh, of the Berlin Turks who you study so carefully in this book? Yeah, that was something that I I wanted to be able to finish the book with this because I I am the person who always wonders what happens next, and so I I wanted I wanted to know what what happens next, and I I wanted the people who would who would then come and read this book also to get the opportunity to know what happens next in the in the lives of the people and the community organizations that I looked at. Um, looking at Germany more broadly, Naveen Chill has written on this, and, and she's done a great job. And I just focused mostly on the neighborhoods and the peoples um, that were in, in the book. Um, and so when, when the wall falls, uh, initially there is excitement. Um, and this, this is something that I think also, uh, reflects how the, um, the Turkish immigrants and how their kids have become a part of, of these communities and have, um, have absorbed many of the same, um, expectations and hopes and plans that their neighbors have. Um, so there's, there's a lot of excitement when the wall comes down. Um, one of the women that I interviewed said that when she, when the, when they heard the wall had come down, um, she and her dad got in a car and they drove and they were so excited and they went over into East Berlin and then they came back to West Berlin and, and, and she was crying because she was just so glad. Um, another man I, who I interviewed said that he was leading a youth group at the time, neighborhood youth that had, um, 
German youth and Turkish German youth in it. And they were super excited and they went out to the train stations and they found some East German youth and they brought them back to their church and they had this party and got to know each other well. And, um, and so there was a lot of sort of that initial fervor that came along with that. But, but then the, um, <laughs> but the consequences, the economic consequences um, to start with, uh, were really, really felt hard in um, in vetting and as in the rest of West Berlin. But um, a lot of the companies that these that the Turkish Germans had had worked at that um, had brought them over that had been these good jobs for them for a long time, they started moving out of the city and they moved into um, the one man called it the Speckgürtel, and I'm not quite sure how you tra- tra- translate that. The, like the bacon belt, I don't know, the area around the city that was much cheaper to operate in and was getting all of these funds now to develop so that it wouldn't, they wouldn't be these economic sinkholes. So the, so companies were moving out. There was a bicycle manufacturing company that moved out. So one man lost his job for that. Um, I think Serati moved out. I don't remember, but um, so, so jobs were moving. Like these workplaces themselves were disappearing out from under the feet of these people who who worked there. Um, And, and so that, that was a very difficult thing um, because, because um, (laughs) I'm going back to terminology now, uh, employees with Turkish background um, were, were much more likely to be in these sort of jobs that disappeared. And, and so the unemployment rate, among um, the first generation of Turkish immigrants was higher, was was always higher than it was under uh, or what, than it was with um, German um, workers. And so they definitely suffered disproportionately um, due to the economic upheaval. And then so politically and culturally, uh, and Naveen Chill talks about this a lot, there's this whole discussion about Germany is reunified. What does it mean for us to be German? Oh, the Germans are back together. And the Turkish Germans are sort of standing there and, and, and they're thinking, you know, we, I feel like we had just about gotten into this German society thing. And now all of a sudden it's being redefined as in what is German. And that is focused almost entirely on bringing these two halves of Germany back together and not on the recognition of the fact that West Germany is now this very multicultural place. And so what does that mean to bring, um, you know, former East Germans into that and to bring, you know, the two halves of Germany together. And so, um, so the, the, the focus on multiculturalism, multicultural relationships then uh, begins to be superseded by this sort of, you know, sort of um, pan-German identity, this, this idea of what does it mean for us to be unified and and German again, one Germany again, Um, so that's difficult. And then, of course, uh, political upheaval and economic crisis um, opens the door to um, radical political groups. And so you have the rise of, of the extreme right again, um, in a, especially in places that are particularly economically hit um, and disadvantaged. And that lends a, a very different, um, that, that lends a, a very different sort of voice and sense to these discussions about sort of fitting it into um, German society when it becomes something that is not just difficult, but also in in some terms, in some places, dangerous um, for people with a Turkish background. Um, So those are sort of all, all kind of, you know, all of these things are going on at the same time. And then in the nineties, you have a lot of purpose-built mosques going up. 
uh, or I should say more, I don't know how you would quantify a lot, but, um, and that is something that is, is, is very much um, changing visual landscape of some cities and causing a lot of, um, a lot of uncertainty and distress in certain parts of the population who see these mosques as, as sort of physical embodiments of something that is not German. Um, and that is sort of displacing Germanness and sort of putting this firm anchor hold of something that is very foreign into an, a landscape that used to be very familiar. And so while, um, while some have argued that, and I, and I argue um, to an extent that that these the 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 growth of these mosque communities uh, and of these umbrella organizations and um, and the building of these mosques represent that this community is sort of coming into a maturity and now can can um, can deal with and communicate with and work with similar organizations um, within Germany. Um, and so they can be platforms for sort of very productive work. Um, other people are seeing them come up as, as sort of a foreign invasion and, and an example of something that um, is threatening to them, um, getting that much more of a foothold in their environment. So, um, so the nineties are really, <laughs> are very, are very interesting time, um, especially in Berlin. And I think especially for um the Turkish German community in trying to, to balance between the sort of their everyday lives and the extent to which their everyday lives are changing. And then these larger political and cultural questions that are going on around them at the same time. Well, excellent, Sarah. And we've taken up an awful lot of your time and I'm sure that this book has taken up an awful lot of time in your life. Um, it was uh, quite a project, and it's clear that it involved a lot of meticulous research and also a lot of deep, uh, sort of insightful thinking. So now that you've uh, finished this, I was just wondering, uh, what's next after the book? Well, there were things that I came across while I was researching the book that I would love the opportunity to get to investigate more. Um, there was a lot of of um, of cultural creativity in West Berlin and especially in vetting. I feel like vetting is just really overlooked, <laughs> but I spent a lot of time there and there was a lot of really exciting things going on there in the eighties when the city was focusing on what they called uh, decentralized cultural work. So not, not so much city focused or city organized and, and uh, um, controlled a cultural production, but the city sort of saying it's your responsibility. You know, if, if you want this cultural life, you kind of need to do it. Um, so a lot of folks in vetting were like, yeah, you know, we can do this. And so you had really interesting centers of, of um, cultural exploration, like Fabrik Ossostrasse, that brought in people from all different kinds of backgrounds um, from the neighborhood. And, and so there, there were musical groups, there was poetry, there were, you could take music lessons there on everything from the Saz uh, to, to sort of traditional German instruments. There were all all kinds of just the dynamics uh, of the place that were that were very interesting um, that I would love to get into more and see how so the interplay between the the Volkshochschule so the local community college and the art scene um, the multicultural art scene that would be interesting to look at um, also something that starts happening I think more in the nineties so it's, it's a little bit soon but you get a growth of um, interreligious dialogue 
And there's not really much of that in my book because there wasn't much going on in the neighborhood at the time. And in fact, one, one man said, we tried to do this and it, it, no one came. Um, but, but then in the nineties, it, it starts to be something where, um, where different religious organizations are starting to talk together and, and think of themselves as, as, as common actors in a community and seeing how they can work together to sort of, you know, address community issues. And I think that those sorts of um, sort of organizational dynamics are another thing that would be really interesting to look at. Um, That said, I'm an adjunct. (laughs) I don't have ready access to uh, an academic library. I don't have um, institutional funding and I have two young children. So, um, whether I'm going to be able to pursue these or other interests that I have um, anytime, you know, very near in the future is is more than a little up in the air. So uh, these days I've been focusing much more on on developing the courses that I'm teaching to bring in these questions of of identity and belonging to introduce my students to um, to ideas of um, to, to think spatially, um, to bring in sort of cultural geography when they're thinking about history, when they're thinking about people interacting with each other. And I'm, I've been, um, I also, I've, I developed a class on Muslims in modern Europe where uh, we read part of my book and um, compare it to things that are going on in France and in Great Britain um, and talk about the, the ways that the different, um, the different contexts in which these, um, these, uh, the immigrant Im- immigration and community settlement formation come about, how those are influenced by different historical backgrounds that, that bring in these immigrants and, and within these different countries at the same time. So, um, so those are the, that's what I have been focusing on more recently and has been um, a really interesting task for me. Well, Sarah, I can tell you that uh, one of the things I enjoy most about doing some of these podcast interviews is that I read books that I ultimately use in my own classroom and I've been trying to focus my own, uh, modern Europe class and 20th century Germany class more on issues of migration. And there's lots in your book that will make it into my classroom as well. Um, But uh, with that, I think we should uh, wrap up our interview. And so Sarah, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's been great. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you all for tuning in. You've been listening to uh, new books in German studies, a channel in the new books network of podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College. We have discussed Sarah Thompson Vieira's book today. The book is entitled Turkish Germans in the Federal Republic of Germany, Immigration, Space, and Belonging, 1961 to 1990. It was published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. We hope you'll continue to listen uh, and tune in to our episodes in the future, and uh, we'll catch all of you listeners next time. Thank you.